Hello, everybody, and today we have another episode of the Football Scouting uh, Podcast, and today's guest, we have B.D. Williams. B.D. was a uh, late um, late add-on to our, the XTB Scouting team. He runs ta- the Tape Don't Lie show on YouTube, and he is our defensive back expert. B.D., how are you doing today? Hey, man, how you doing? Thanks, Thanks Paul, for having me. Absolutely. Um, so football, football's great. We all love football and have always found it really interesting to see like how people fall in love with football. I fall under the tiny kid who grew up really, really skinny and had to go to a lot of doctor's appointments, but I just love the game so much and I did everything possible I could to be around the game. And then uh, other people fell in love with the game by uh, playing it and other people fell in love with get the game by playing football video games in Madden. Right. Uh, how did your journey start with football um, and how did you grow to love it? Well, um, you know, uh, everyone in my family played football, uh, watched football. That's, you know, the biggest sport um, in, in my family, you know, and, you know, that's something that um, is just like, since I remember, I mean, my parents told me that my uh, one of my first words that I ever said was football. So um, it's definitely just been a big part of my life as, as far as like being a fan of the game. And I played, um, you know, started playing when I was eight years old. Uh, so, you know, I, I basically played my entire life until college um, and where I was lucky enough to play for a couple of years at the University of Stony Brook, uh, which is uh, part of the FCS. Um, and and really, you know, um, I, I was I, I was really lucky to be a recipient of some some really good coaches um coach uh, jim gush was my secondary coach and he was our defensive coordinator at stony brook um and he went on afterwards to coach at baylor and he's the head coach at Mc- mcneese state now um and he you know showed me a lot of technique taught me a lot of a lot of things about the game that i didn't know about you know playing high school football and then going to uh to going to college really opened my eyes up um, and then also just taught me a lot about schema. Uh, it's really lucky because the scheme that he was coaching us in at Stony Brook was uh, basically the 425 before the 425 got super popular. And it was like after that, um, that everyone wanted to know how TCU did things. And, um, you know, it was kind of, you know, at the time it was a little bit on the cutting edge in terms of like how to defend the spread uh, offenses. So uh, I was lucky that I just fell right into that and, uh, you know, received that kind of coaching. Uh, but yeah, it's it's always been a passion of mine, and you know I've I've been playing my whole life basically. Yeah, that's that's always a great thing when you play in a scheme, and then like five ten years later, it's like what everybody wants to, uh, wants to run. Because when you said four two five, like my immediate thought was Gary Patterson right. and the TCU Horned Frogs, like that he kind of like has. He has that scheme, and that's what will always be attached to him, like Rich Rodriguez and the read option or uh, Nick Saban and these uh, man-match cover sevens. It's like you think of that scheme, you immediately think of that coach. But, you know, there was always other people doing doing other things and doing similar things before somebody else took it. And, yeah, it's always the way schemes spread around the NFL. Yeah, the um, fun. The- the thing about TCU, so like TCU is in Texas, and my coach, um, who taught me this four two five, you know, taught the entire defense. Um, he was also from Texas. It's a Texas thing, okay? Like the coverages that they run at TCU, all the high school coaches in Texas run these coverages. It's like it's a big thing, especially because 
that's probably where they play the most amount of uh, spread uh, offense. So uh, defensive coaches have to know how to how to stop it. So yeah, it's it's a big Texas thing, the the four two five for sure. Yeah, in my high school in Ohio, like all of the teams ran like four fours and I formations and wing tees, and it's just just like right. there right. is no. It was. Fun to learn the playbook, but the most advanced passing concept I ever saw was scissors, and it was like, like I just was not in the uh, right situation playing and like uh, being around playing in a well, mostly not playing, but like being around a Division Five high school football team that won nine games in five years. Mm-hmm. Didn't really have much to pick up, uh, pick up there schematically. I mean, in college, I got to see, like, the Dino Babers offense uh, go with Bowling Green, but I worked in stats and uh, information as opposed to actually with the football team there. So I just kind of wish I could have been around there, like, learning how they got their plays in, um, what they did off of their, like, uh, four vert, four verts va- base and all the plays they ran off of it. Yeah. I've learning scheme is so so crucial to scouting because when you when you're able to start recognizing things then you can recognize to see if the player you're watching can start recognizing things and that's instincts that's a critical trait for safeties and linebackers and corners right exactly yeah i think um i think people you know who watch this and you know you you want to scout you want to get involved and evaluate players like your ability to scout is going to just grow tenfold if you have you know a solid understanding of the type of schemes that are run in the in college um and what what of that translates to the nfl and what scheme college schemes don't translate or they are not run in the nfl that's going to really help your process out so i definitely encourage you know anyone listening to this you know learn as much as you can not just about you know finding out traits and you know it's easy to scout traits you it's easy to see a guy who's bigger and faster and stronger than everyone else like duh that's not a hard thing to identify anyone could do that you know but identifying the type of techniques that they should be you know where their eyes should be things like that uh that's going to help your scouting out immensely Mm -hmm. so uh following up on that is yeah i love scouting out scheme but like coverages like beyond cover one cover two quarters cover three i've kind of find myself having a little trouble with like different combination coverages like i still do not feel i understand or could explain to a 16 year old or explain to like a college freshman how the alabama cover seven works and different principles of man match what would you recommend to both me and our viewers listening viewers listening because i would assume most of the viewers uh people who are listening also want to become scouts to say get to that next step past knowing man zone one middle of field open middle of field uh closed and how to understand these different man match concepts that are very very popular and very effective yeah so there's um there's there's a couple guys um on twitter coach vass you know uh cody alexander these guys are kind of scheme gurus they you know everything Every, every coverage, they're going to be able to like, yeah, that's this and this and this. So those guys are very knowledgeable. Definitely, you know, look into to coaching clinics. You know, there's Nick Saban coaching clinics on YouTube. Um, the uh, Jeremy Pruitt coaching clinic talks all about Cover 7 Tennessee. There's another uh, coaching clinic uh, about Cover 7 with the uh, defensive backs coach at Alabama. So, you know, there's a lot of resources uh, to dive into those things. 
And it, you can't say what it like, you know, for cover one, you can say, OK, it's man across the board. There's a low hole defender and then there's a deep man in the post. But for cover seven, you can't say, oh, it's this because every cover seven is going to have like three or four calls to the short side of the field and then three or four calls uh, to the wide side of the field. So you can't say, oh, it's this and this. No, it's like it could be a combination of like 15 different co- coverages. So you can't say. Uh, cover seven is one thing, but really the the biggest thing is you're going to see two high safeties and you're going to see the underneath defenders with their eyes on wide receivers and, you know, pass them off to each other. There's a lot of different combinations of what could happen, but if that's what you're seeing, you're seeing uh, linebackers and uh, nickels watch where the wide receiver is going and not the quarterback, then you're probably, and there's two high safeties, there's, you're probably looking at a cover seven. Okay. So it's like, I uh, when when I think of man, I think of their look. Uh, they're like following the receivers, and they they turn their hips towards the receivers in the zone. They turn their hips to the quarterback. I think I can. I'm starting to like visualize like the linebackers like having their hips pointing north and south, look uh, looking for what's like coming at them. Am I visualizing this right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So. Wow, I feel I I've uh, now understand a little bit more about Dylan Moses now. I'm <laughs> I'm now I'm recalling some of uh, some of that film. So uh, what did you do after college, or what was like the moment that you like realized that your football dreams are done? You're not going to the uh, NFL or CFL or uh, any or playing football anymore. Uh, how did that come about, and uh, what what did you do? Well, I realized I wasn't going to play in the NFL probably in the first month of college when, you know, I went from being the best player my high school had had, you know, come through for like the last four or five years um, to being like one of the worst players on my FCS team. So that was, you know, I quickly realized, okay, I'm probably going to have to, you know, squash this tiny NFL dream that I had. Um, But no, but really, I, you know, uh, I got injured a lot in high school, too. I got injured in college. I got injured. I tore my ACL twice, had had hip surgery. So uh, I was pretty banged up. Uh, I I ended up giving up football after two years because of the injuries. And I just wanted to focus on, you know, um, finishing college. And I joined, uh, not I joined, but I started working in education as soon as college was done. Uh, And I worked in education for 10 years. Um, I also coached high school football uh, for a few years when my job permitted me to, you know, leave uh, around three o'clock. So uh, that's kind of, you know, where my uh, where my where where my life went after college. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Also, a hip surgery gang. um, I've got a nice good 22 inch scar on my hip from a a trauma incident. So a little different, but I always find it very interesting when there's like a random thing two very different people have in common. (laughs) And uh, one of the things for us is hip surgery. (laughs) Right, right. So, okay. so uh, let's get into more like. Uh, your education background, because education and being able to teach people things is just a very important fundamental skill for pretty much everything. Like, I think I thought about education and how we should best or um, how we should help teach some of our younger scouts some of these concepts. So like at the beginning, like during the summer, we'd have like these Skype calls and Cyril would like teach new concepts to these um, to our scouts. over zoom and skype and it was it was really great and uh what has what has been like the 
thing that you've learned from education that has helped you most as a coach in teaching football concepts? What do you say? So, yeah. So, um, you know, my job in education was, um, well, a big part of my job in education was to train teachers. So I, I had a few cer- uh, certifications on uh, dealing with acting out individuals, how to use, you know, verbal strategies to de-escalate um, people, which is something that you need to have if you go work in the Bronx or you go work in uh, East Harlem, because, you know, more often than not, you're going to have a couple kids in your class who have issues with that or even parents um, who, you know, will come in pretty irate. So it was like a everyday thing where I'm talking people off a ledge. Um, and I also train teachers how to do that. Um, I also train teachers how to, you know, uh, uh, manage behavior in their classroom, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I had, I had a lot of professional development personally on how to, on adult learning and how adults learn best. And, you know, something that I learned that I've, that I've brought over to, you know, my writing and my podcast, my video breakdowns is being as concise as possible and avoiding jargon. So, you know, like we were talking about cover seven, um, but also like talking about what exactly that means and breaking it down so that we're not just, you know, keep on throwing around this cover seven term that maybe uh, a lot of listeners might not know about or not under fully understand. Right. Uh, so, you know, those are the kind of things that definitely have helped me um, in terms of, you know, writing and and doing video breakdowns about football. All right. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. And de-escalation is a uh, is a very, very important, uh, important tool. Um I'm a, I'm a very value-focused person, and I, I love, like, studying, like, ethics and doing my best to be, like, a good a good person in real life. And I'd say my second fa- uh, favorite value that I always think about that I think I do a really good job of is uh, self-control. And being able to not only have self-control when uh, things get rowdy, uh, I was working at Taco Bell drive-thru, and two dudes were about to have a fight, like, right outside my window. And I'm just dead calm try, uh, trying to get these people to realize that it's Sunday night and you're about to have a fight at a Taco Bell drive through And while I wasn't really able to get them to calm down, I was very happy that I was able to at least be me myself, be calm and kind of understand what was going on and understand what steps I would take if this were to happen and what I would do if this were to happen, as opposed to uh, some of my other co- uh, co-workers who were about ready to rip, bring their phones out and start yelling world star. So, <laughs> yeah, that's actually one of the most unfortunate things uh, when you see people, you know, get into arguments and people pull their phones out. They've actually, um, that's a, that's a thing when people realize that they're on camera, they start acting uh, more aggressive or they start acting out more. So anytime I see, you know, these videos of, you know, like kids or people who are having a hard time and people start pulling the phones out, it's just like, that's like the number one thing that you don't want to do uh, when people are having a hard time. So, <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you brought that up. Yeah, and yeah, that just ha- that just happened a couple days ago, and it's like I've seen I've seen some interesting things happen at a Taco Bell drive-through, but that that one that one was a that one was a first, like t- a near fight. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, that's really good. I very much value concision as well. Um, I felt that. Uh, my reports were normally amongst the shortest on the word counts because like I I hate run on sentences and I just try to say what the guy does in as few words as possible. Like, oh, he has great he has great ba- uh, balance and 
or he's got great ankle flexion that allows him to contain uh it allows him a good bend when trying to turn the corner when rushing passer so it's like i just try to use as little words as possible which i think kind uh both helps but uh i also feel like sometimes i'm leaving out a little detail or that i can explain things more and can be more vivid uh when you when you write scouting reports uh, what is your kind of like strat- writing strategy there, and how does that differ from your communication style when you're doing audiovisual type stuff, like on your YouTube channel? Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's a lot more conversational, and you're not always going to hit on all your points when you're having a conversation. Um, there's a lot of times when I do my, you know, you, um, my YouTube episodes, and I go, oh, I forgot to mention that, or I forgot to bring that, because you know, I'm not going to write a script. You know, I have a full time job, I have a daughter. So I'm not going to be writing a script for myself. But um, and when you have the benefit of sitting down and writing something, you can actually look it over and say, oh, did you miss something? Um, you know, d- did you hit on all the points that you want to hit on? And also, you guys had a great format. So, you know, it was easy for me to organize my thoughts, you know, strength and weaknesses section, the what we need to learn section um, and just, you know, go from there. Um, uh, so definitely the format probably helped out as far as, you know, writing those reports. All right. That yeah, that sound uh, that sounds good. It's uh yeah for scouting reports, your reports are sometimes only as good as your skeleton. Uh, I've seen other people how have like different uh, scouting report systems, and when they do it, they all have one player gets graded higher and another player gets graded lower. But they like the player that's graded lower more than the player that's graded higher. That was just kind of the hole they walked. The, uh, they that was kind of the house they built for themselves with their uh, scouting system. And that was one of the things I've been most proud of is that I really don't think there were too many examples of us doing that. The only times where I think that may have happened was is all of our grades were present value grades, like what they were as a rookie. So guys like uh, Brevin Jordan or Ellerson Smith or guys with higher upsides were kind of graded as what you'd expect them to be as a rookie, as opposed to what they'll be in three years. That was probably the one thing that I feel that we could have done better with our system. Right, right. All right. So uh, I think that was uh, really awesome learning about like uh, commu- communication styles and how that has helped you become a better scout and a better coach. So uh, let's talk about the guys. Let's talk about some of the players you've watched. And uh, we'll start off with your big, your big hot take the player that I've been seeing getting some second round buzz, rarely some cornerback uh, four and first round buzz, and that's Greg Newsom. What did you? What positives did you see in uh, Greg Newsom's game? Well, I, I, I liked that Greg Newsom, um, even though he wasn't asked to do a bunch of things in coverage, he basically played press man uh, in cover one, or they played quarters, and I thought that. You know, those two techniques that he, you know, was asked to do the majority of the time, he showed great technique. Uh, when he was impressed, man, you know, he would motor out. So you would take these six inch steps backwards while mirroring the release of the receiver, uh, get his hands on uh, at the right time. You know, you, you'd see him turn and run. I thought that he had great technique and press. I thought that his uh, footwork initially in uh, off coverage when he was playing cover four was also good. Uh, so it was it was clear that he was a coached up guy. And so that's definitely one thing that I really liked about him. Uh, I thought he was a good tackler. 
Um, not like phenomenal, but he was a good tackler. He's definitely a willing tackler. So that's like half the battle with corners. A lot of times you see him not even want to tackle. Uh, and that, that wasn't a problem with Greg Newsom. Uh, so th- those are two things that I really liked about him. All right. But, uh, you had a later round grade for him. What do you think that, what was it that you saw in Greg Newsom that you think maybe the people who are giving him CB4 or second round grades are missing? So, like, you know, it's good to watch a lot of guys, a lot of corners. You know, if you're watching corners, you need to watch a lot of corners so you can see how they compare, you know. Um, And he, you know, in comparison to some other guys that I watched, like uh, Josh Job, I think I'm saying his name right, uh, Elijah Griffin, he was not nearly as sudden, twitchy. Uh, The fast twitch just wasn't, like, obvious when you're watching Greg Newsom in comparison to some of these other guys. Uh, so that's something that um, I probably knocked him for. I thought that, it, you know, when he was turning and running, okay, especially when he was, like, playing from off, when he was turning and running and a receiver broke inside, broke outside, it would take Newsom a lot of steps to kind of, you know, gear down and change directions. And I th- thought that he gave up a lot of separation in those situations. Um, and I think that a lot of that has to do with, you know, his suddenness is probably just average. It's not, you know, like a elite corner, um, you know, uh, you know, agility and fast twitch. So that's something that uh, I knocked him for. The other thing that I probably knocked him for was um, his, he, I would see him get bodied, you know, at the catch point. Um, and, and I, again, I, I watched like four games of his and I've watched so many prospects. I can't even remember which games of his I watched at this point, but um, that was something that I saw what would happen when there were 50, 50 balls in the air, he would be, um, you know, he'd be out muscled for those 50, 50 balls. Um, and then the last thing that I, I knocked him for was there was a lot of situations where it was like, you know, like third and short or goal line situations where he was just a tick late kind of diagnosing what the offense was doing and, you know, either with a let, it, let a guy open, even if the quarterback didn't capitalize on it, or maybe gave up a first down. So I thought that maybe his, um, you know, situational awareness wasn't uh, super high, despite, you know, having great technique, um, which is, you know, usually if you have great situational awareness, you have great technique because you're a well-coached player. But I thought that maybe, you know, he was a little slow, tick slow to diagnose things at times. Yeah. All right. That actually that actually makes a lot of this a lot of sense. I know the dealing with separation on breaks was a huge issue when I was scouting uh, Trey Brown from Oklahoma. It's like the guy was so fast vertically. My um my line on him was if all you're ever asking him to do is cover Andy Isabella on go routes, then he's going to be an all pro corner. But the second some a solid wide receiver would run a slant or a dig on him. They would always get separation on the break. And he was just too small to really, uh, he was just a very small corner. And while he showed good ball skills going up and getting interceptions and having playing with good verticality, I think if he were to go up against bigger receivers, the AJ greens and the chase Claypools of the world, then he's just going to get absolutely destroyed. So, be, uh, seeing that was one of the things I saw in Brown that really kind of made me concerned. Uh, what did you see with uh, Shakur Brown? 
Shakur Brown was another guy I've been seeing get middle mid round grades. That was uh, wasn't exactly your guy. Shakur Brown is a very smart player. He's got excellent technique. They asked him to play outside corner, uh, nickel corner, safety. So it's clear that this guy's very smart. Um, and on top of that, you know, like very good transitions, like not a lot of wasted movement, things like that. Um, he to me, he looked like he was a four six guy. He's probably like a shade under five foot ten. You can't be slow and uh, or you can't be small and slow. You know, yeah. like if you're the size that he is, I I really need to see a guy be incredibly explosive. And you just didn't see that from Shakur Brown. He was actually never a starter. It was it was a really a pain watching Michigan State film and trying to find Shakur Brown because he would like not be in half the time. And I'm like scrolling through trying to find his number. Some games he played a lot more than others, but um, so he, he wasn't even a full-time contributor at Michigan State, even though he was a very smart player. Um, and, and again, his instincts I thought were great. Um, you know, his technique I thought was awesome, but I just wasn't seeing the profile of an NFL player. I was seeing a very good college player who, I don't know, it's questionable if he'll be able to translate to the NFL. Okay, yeah, because I do remember Shakur Brown had very, very good PFF grades. He was like a top 10 corner by some of their metrics. But yeah, if you're surviving on just instincts alone, and you're like what you said, both small and slow, like there's only so much, there's only so much instincts and having the heart and having the brain can take you. Because Cole Beasley and these players so many different players have so many different elite traits that you're going to need to cover. The other thing though, too, that I'll say about Shakur Brown is I would be able to say, okay, you know what? Maybe in a cover three scheme where he's not having to play man so much, he could play nickel corner, but man, I saw that guy miss more tackles than anyone that I scouted. He can't tackle. He can't tackle. Um, so it's like, what, where where do you play him? Because you can't play him in nickel if you can't tackle, and he definitely doesn't have an athletic profile to play on the outside. You know, uh, so I was having a hard time figuring out what he was going to be able, good at in the NFL. Uh, I also have an aside too. You know, based off of what you're saying, so Shakur Brown Shakur Brown had great PFF, PFF stats, right? So I was playing at, at uh, Stony Brook, and we had a corner who was five foot six, five foot seven. But he was strong as as all outdoors. He was a very strong guy. He had phenomenal uh, footwork. He was a very technically sound player, and he didn't give up a touchdown all year. Okay. And we had another guy starting at a corner on the opposite side of him, who was six foot one. He could run four fours. He transferred from Michigan for some reason. I think he, maybe he got kicked out or something like that. Um, and he was a phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. And he was such a good athlete. He was so arrogant. He would try to jump everything. And he gave up like five or six touchdowns all year. Okay. Now, if PFF was charting us, which they weren't, obviously, we're FCS, Stony Brook. But if PFF was charting us, they would say, okay, this other this other smaller guy is a, is a better player. Right. And he's probably, yeah, he's probably a better football player, but he's not a better athlete. And it was actually the guy who gave up all those touchdowns that got a chance and got a shot with the Seattle Seahawks after he got done playing with us. So the NFL, you know, I think that as long as you're a big, fast guy, they're going to give you a shot, whether it's, you know, whether you get drafted or whether you get, you know, signed as an undrafted free agent. But they're going to give you a shot if you're a big and fast guy. You know, um, sometimes the, the smaller guys, not super explosive guys, they don't get a lot of love. So that's yeah, that's just the that's just the name of the game. Like when 
when, if you're limited physically, like there's just some stuff that you can't do. Like even if that five foot six guy, even if he were to like, let's say go to a version like the AAF or the XFL, he goes up against a six foot three wide receiver without help. That's not going to be very pretty at the catch point. And there's nothing he can do about it. He can't just like eat more soup and get top, get taller. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah. All righty. So, uh, what 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 would be the uh, earliest round you would feel comfortable taking Greg Newsom, assuming he's a scheme fit? Um, pro- maybe around like round four is what he seemed like to me. But I haven't seen enough guys, so I can't tell you the round that people you know go in. You know, I, I used to watch a lot more than I than I have watched this year. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it. You know, the teams are probably going to be attracted to the fact that he was a technician and, you know, what he was asked to do. So it, at least he has that going for him. Uh, but, yeah, just not uh, as impressive as an, of an athlete as some of these other guys that I watched. So, you know, I would I would think um, I would take I, w- I would think a team would probably, you know, feel better l- t- taking a shot on a guy with uh, some better athleticism. So. All right, uh, let's let's move away from defensive backs. So when you came in here late, uh, you uh, you were kind of boxed out of all of like the really good prospects, but you had a chance to kind of like watch some of the uh, late risers that we had uh, in the draft. Uh, one of those guys who nobody really expected to even be in this draft was quarterback Davis Mills. Mm. What I've heard heard a lot of different things about him. Uh, where do you think he's going to go and what type of quarterback do you think he's going to be? I mean, um, I, so I have, I've seen some, um, some rankings, some quarterback rankings that had Davis Mills, like after like the top five, six quarterbacks in this class. And, uh, I, that wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me to be honest with you. I thought I was really impressed when I was watching him. I was like, actually, this guy's pretty darn good. Um, the thing that he probably does best is he he throws guys open, and I think that that's a tough thing to um, to teach. You know, I think that that's something that you either have that kind of anticipation um, or you don't. You know, you can teach a you, you know you can teach a guy an offense, but you can how often are we going to see guys start varying their ball placement and you know making uh, different types of throws. So I was really impressed with Davis Mills' uh, ability to throw guys open with anticipation. Um, he doesn't have a huge arm. You know, he's not going to ever be considered like a super talent or anything like that. But I think the guy can really play. You know, um, I'll be interested to see where he lands in the NFL. I, d- I don't want to make a prediction on where he's going to go, but uh, he's definitely he definitely belongs in the NFL. Yeah, Davis Mills was a guy that I um that I got a little hip with from PFF started hyping him up a little bit early uh early. Uh I kind of had him in my mind as one of those guys who next year could be this year's version of Mac Jones or Kyle Trask or the previous year's version of Joe Burrow, like the guy that's on the bottom of the, the draftable list now that can shoot uh shoot up very high. But now he decides to come uh, come in early and take advantage of all of these quarterbacks like Kenny Pickett and Dustin Crum, guys or Desmond uh, Ritter from Cincinnati. Like all of those guys would have been probably like those mid round, fifth round, mid to fifth round kind of quarterbacks. But now they're all heading back, and he goes and kinds of ta- uh, kinds of takes that role, and he's I think at the second youngest quarterback in the class behind Trey Lance. Oh really? Well. Wow. Yeah. So. 
Oh yeah, yeah after after uh, Lance Lawrence and Fields. So, do you think that was a good decision for him to come out early in this draft class, or should he have uh, risked it all to uh, blow up his? <laughs> well, yeah, he's, year? he's probably not risking it all. I don't think that he like. Yeah, you can say that about Joe Burrow because it wasn't like a incredible arm talent from Joe Burrow, but um, definitely not playing with the same caliber of athletes at Stanford that Joe Burrow um, played with at LSU. But um, you know, it, it's 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 interesting, and and I don't know what people are telling prospects about what their decision to come out, you know, after their junior year or, or stay back for their senior year, especially during like a COVID off season. Um, I do think it is going to be difficult for rookies to contribute um again this year because you know the um the way that the offseason looks like it's you know it's going to be limited so i don't know what goes behind the decision making there for guys to come out early or not um but i do think that you know he'll probably be like a second or third round pick and that's a pretty solid place to go uh so you might as well just go for it at that point exactly and if you have a bad year then you might get completely and utterly jumped by whatever new Carson Strong or Sam, the Sam Howells or maybe somebody new, like maybe Bo Nix randomly figures it all out next year and fall down the board. So it was definitely surprising because it doesn't really happen that much, but due to the strange circumstances of this year and how weak the quarterback class is after the uh, top six, like, we have him as our QB7 right now, right right in between Kyle Trask and Kellen Mond and Jamie Newman. So that's like you're going to you're going to be getting you're going to be getting that money. All right. right. Safety. So you said that you have scouted a whole bunch of safeties. Um we have I have my uh, our safety rankings up right now, and uh, I want you to tell uh, tell us who do you think would be the best safety if you're looking for a free safety like a center fielder, middle of field close, cover three ball hawk. Yeah. Who do you think is the best safety that fits that mold? I mean, that's obviously it's got to be Andre Cisco. You know, he's um he's got f- fantastic range, uh, fantastic playing speed. I saw him really anticipate uh, some really uh, s- some tough concepts to anticipate, get a jump on things, and make the quarterback hold onto the ball when he was playing at Syracuse. So he's got the best combination of instincts, um, transitions, and playing speed um, on the back end. And to me, that's what that's what makes a guy have range. It's not enough to just be fast. You got to have those other other you know parts of your game to have good range. So for me, it's Andre Cisco. You know um, the thing about being though that center fielder is also you're the last line of defense against you know the run you got to fill against the run um and sometimes i i think that his question his uh, effort was questionable um but really you know if 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 he you know went out and played you know with a lot of fire a lot of hustle he would be the number one safety in this draft but it's uh there's some question marks about how hard he plays so that's the only reason that he's getting knocked down probably yeah i we see we Uh, We see that the same uh, in our report that Cyril Penn did for our draft guide. Surprised that uh, we're 35 minutes in, and this is the first time I'm mentioning the draft guide that we just got finished, $12 on (laughs) expandtheboxscore.com, that uh, Andre Sisko has a 7 for range, so he's already, like, better than most starters in the NFL with his range, and he has an 
eight ball skills as when we're starting to use like the word elite like we're starting we see him as a guy who can be that center fielder who flies all around and when he gets close to the ball can like pick that off and get four to seven interceptions in any given season so that's really special but we also have a red flag on his tackling and we're not very excited about his pursuit so if you're one of those guys who like are willing to sacrifice his weaknesses against the run for the pass, and apparently that's what the analytics say you should do, then Andre Sisco looks like a player that uh, you would want. All right, what safety would you feel is the uh, best Swiss Army knife, the kind of player who can stop the run, cover the short zones, play a little deep, and just do everything at least a little bit well? Uh, It's got to be Richie Grant for me. Um, by far, easily, you know, um, he's a very well-rounded guy. You saw him at the senior bowl, completely locking guys down in man coverage. And I had watched maybe four or five games of his before that. So I wasn't surprised at his ability to play man coverage. There's a lot of people before I started watching Richie Grant and they were talking about how, oh, he's a free safety, right? And yeah, he's got some very, some really good film, especially his anticipation. I don't think he has the same speed. Um, or range as Andre Sisco or maybe even Trayvon Morig. But I think that his anticipation definitely helps him out there. Um, but then you see him get coming in the box, playing the run, um, you know, just like all around game. He ha- he makes plays everywhere in, uh, in the field with combination of just like absolute hustle, effort and great instincts. So I, I think that um, uh, Richie Grant is definitely my guy as far as Swiss Army Knife. Yep. We have Richie Grant, well, uh, tied with Andre Sisco as our number three safety in um, in the draft so far this year. And this was the Richie Grant report was like one of those moments where I knew that what we're doing was really well, because when that Richie Grant report came in from Rob Simpson, it was at like I was like looking at this, like, is this guy going to be like a first, second rounder? Is this guy really that good? Because nobody was talking about him. Like, the list that I was looking at him had him as a fifth to seventh round player. But we got a hold of the we got a hold of the film. We watched the film. We knew we knew and understand what he did well, and we were able to see that Richie Grant was going to be early and called that out before the rest of the media got a hold of it. We did that for both Richie Grant and Peyton Turner. So it was just really kind of exciting to see that with those two scouts, two of our best ones, being able to kind of like call their shot and hit on a prospect before they kind of blow up within the rest of the draft community was uh, really good. So I take it you agree that Richie Grant, top three corner, uh, second round pick? uh, Yeah, definitely. Got to be. Got to be a second round pick, yeah. All right. And uh, this is a fun one. Uh, I always joke around um, with certain players and I'll call them uh, 2006 players, which means that if they were coming out in the year 2006, they would be first rounders. <laughs> These are kind of uh, players, uh, big, slow, mobile quarterbacks. You can probably say that, um, somebody like Mac Joe, um, not me. Maybe not Mac Jones, but maybe somebody like Kyle Trask or uh, Felipe Franks are guys that you would call 2006 first rounders or your big plotting running back that can't really contribute in the past game. Um, who would you say is like the uh, the safety that you're going to draft because he's really good at stopping the run? He can tackle. He can come in and lay the boom, but maybe he doesn't really do that much in pass coverage. 
Yeah. So honestly, the first one that comes to mind, um, although you probably disagree with um, that, he's a safety. But if it's 2006, Talanoa Hafunga could play safety in the NFL, I think. Same with Jacoby Stevens. You know, these guys, they're big. They can get in and stop the run. Uh, I do question, however, if they are actually safeties in today's game. I think that they're, you know, most likely going to have to play at the second level exclusively um, in today's NFL. But definitely 2006, those guys could play safety. Um, those guys would probably be a lot rated a lot higher than they are now if it was 2006. Okay, yep. We actually do have Tala, Talano Hafango at linebacker. Yeah, uh, we have him, I think, linebacker 10-ish. But yeah, we just did not think that he had the range or the quickness or the athleticism to be asked to be in charge of that much space at the third level. So we uh, we moved him down to linebacker and hope that, that his frame would work out better there. I mean, I remember the days when linebackers needed to be 230. Now we have guys coming in at around 210 going to play linebacker. It's just kind of how the how the game has been moving. All right, so we got that we got the prototypes down. Uh, I just want to. I think we should still talk about the big two safeties. Um, our top two is Trevon Morig and Javon Holland. Do you agree with our top two? I agree with the top one, Trevon Morig, for sure. Um, you know, he, he's very clean, very clean prospect. I think that the one knock that is preventing him from being, you know, regarded as like, you know, in the same class as maybe like Minka Fitzpatrick and Jamal Adams is that the angles that he takes, you know, coming towards the ball carrier, I think need a little work as, as far as, you know, his ability to get the guy on the ground. You know, he's willing. Uh, sometimes, you know, he takes a questionable angle or two in a game. Uh, but other than that, very clean prospect, um, very well coached, a lot of anticipation. And then also, you know, something that we don't talk about, but we should talk about a lot more with safeties is you are, you're in charge of getting everyone in the right spot to play their coverage, right? And that's something that Trayvon Moore, like you could see him talking, pointing guys out, covering up for players if they made a mistake, you know, um, that that was huge. I think that that guy's definitely ready to make an instant impact in the NFL. Now the guy that, uh, Javon Holland, uh, we could talk about it, okay? And no disrespect to, to the scout who, di- who did him, okay? I'm just struggling to see what Javon Holland, like how he fits in the NFL, right? Because if you watch his film, he has two safeties on top of him at all times. He basically played their nickel Sam spot at Oregon. And so he's he's a second level defender almost exclusively at Oregon. Um, and he's not a nickel in, in the NFL, I don't think. I don't think that he can play man coverage well enough to play nickel in the NFL. And he's obviously not a linebacker. He's not big enough to be a linebacker. He's probably going to come out and be, you know, right around six feet, 205 pounds. So, um, you know, I think that after taking a year off and then coming in and actually having to play safety where he's going to have to play on the third level, which is not something that he, well, he did that very rarely at Oregon. Um, I'm struggling to figure out how he is going to transition and where he's going to fit in the NFL, if I'm being completely honest with you. Yeah, we we projected him as a strong safety. Our summary statement was Javon Holland is an athletic strong safety who can make plays with high effort and instincts. He projects as a year one star, uh, strong safety in a scheme that will use his versatility in the box, in the slot, and on the third level of the field. So this is kind of like where we're getting into the uh, weird thing where it's he's a master of none type players, where this guy views, uh, views that ambiguity of what position he's going to play in as versatility and 
like a chess piece that can move in multiple places because he does seem to have a pretty unique skill set. Um, our trait grades, he's got NFL starter grades in pretty much everything except pursuit, like no huge strength, no huge weaknesses. But you kind of view it as, hey, if you can't be really good at one position, then you're just going to be below average at multiples. Is, is it, am I you think I'm reading that right? So, you know, I don't want to essentialize him or, you know, bet against him. Uh, I just don't know what I've seen, you know, to say, OK, yeah, now he can play cover two and come into the NFL and immediately play cover two because he basically never did that. And in fact, the worst plays that you'll see Javon Holland make is when. You know, being that nickel Sam defender in their in their um, offense, that means he goes to the wide side of the field because the majority of the time the three three receivers of their passing strength goes to the wide side of the field. And the way that Oregon would attack, uh, I'm sorry, the ways that teams would attack Oregon sometimes is that they would put what's called putting formation into the boundary. So they would put three wide receivers to the short side of the field. So Javon Holland back up and play actual safety while the other safety had to come down and play that nickel Sam spot. And those are probably his worst plays when he's actually playing safety. <laughs> right? so, oh, so like once um, he gets in the space, it's just like he 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 got caught off guard there. Yeah. So I, I just question the transition because it doesn't matter. You know, there's no there's no such thing as just a box safety in the NFL anymore. Every safety has to be able to play both the free and the strong positions. They have to be able to play deep coverages as well. Um, and there's not enough film, honestly, of it. There's a lot of film of him playing in the box, and I think he's fantastic playing against the run. I think that, you know, um, if he goes to the right scheme where it's a big, heavy cover three th- cover three scheme where he can play zone and not pl- have to play man and he can vision the quarterback, I think that he is a playmaker, but it's going to have to be in the right scheme. Um, and we'll see how quickly he can transition to playing in the NFL after taking a year off. So. Yep. I also think um, for guys like this that are like difficult projections, you really he really is going to need to test well because it's a lot easier to try to like visualize a person making a scheme shift if they have great size and speed. If you you don't have that, then the projection becomes you're just you're playing with imagination there. So who was your safety two? My my safety two is Richard Grant. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. That would make sense. And do you have a safety sleeper, a safety that you that most people don't have in the first two two to three rounds that you think is going to have an impact year one or? Um, probably not. Probably not. Um, I don't think that it's as strong as a safety class as it has been. You know, I watched Tariq Thompson from San Diego State, and I forget which game I watched, but I was like, man, this guy's good. This guy's really good. And then I watched him against BYU and I was starting to second guess myself. So, you know, everyone's going to have a a great game and then not such a great game. Um, I I will say that, you know, there's a there's a after my like top four guys, there's a big backlog or um, of of safeties. So we'll see once the athletic testing comes, uh, you know, is is here and we get the guys measurables and, and their 40 times and all that. Maybe that might clear some things up and, you know, break some ties. But uh, I do think that I think that I'm probably higher on Hamza Nasrallah than most scouts, uh, because I do think that he's one of these big safeties who's not not gonna, not just like a big defensive back and you know like a extra linebacker on the field. I do think that uh, he moves really well, uh, especially for a big man. Uh, so right now he's actually my safety four, and I think I'm probably a little higher on him than consensus. And we have uh, we have him as uh, safety uh, safety number six. Uh, us as the group um so yeah we 
we see the, how great he is at tackling. We recognize how great of a gift his size is. I mean, 6'3", 213, that's what you want. And you just have that, like, well, how he can make impacts in so many different spots and that he's decent in his own coverage. But, yeah, it's like you don't want to put, like, a – I'm just scared that he's going to be a little bit slower, might not be able to handle, like, shifty receivers in the slot or might not have the range to really be good in the free safety role. One guy I watch that I'm kind of interested in is what teams are going to do with Trey Norwood. Trey Norwood's one of these safety safeties in a cornerback's bodies, like these safety corner hybrids that I've been noticing are starting to uh, come about. I mean, you have our Darius Washington, who's a very, very small safety, uh, I put Bledsoe in that category as well, with like a slot safety kind of guy. You know, is he a nickel? Is he a safety? What what is it? You know. Yeah, and it, but it's always great when you see like a safety that you know is running four four, and you're just like, he, I'm not sure where exactly he's going to play, but if it's a dime and it's third and twelve, and you need a guy who can be be fast and cover a lot of ground, he seems to be uh, one of those guys. Okay, yeah, actually, I haven't, I have not watched him yet, so I, uh, now I'm going to after you said that. So, <laughs> I mean, I still have a late round grade on him, and a lot of that is due to, in part to him not really having the, uh, the real elite physical traits to be a corner and not having the size to be a safety. But if there was just like a dime player as a position, I just feel he'd do very, very well at that. Uh, this is actually something I was kind of wondering. What do you do to project defensive backs as special teamers? Like, what defensive backs do you think make the best special teamers in the NFL? Size, speed. Size, speed. Size, speed. Just go for it. Let's see. Let's see who's crazy. You know, like that's uh, that's the usually like the fifth wide receiver, sixth wide receiver. You know, like that third string safety. They're always going to be a big, fast guy. You know, like that's what the NFL wants. NFL is not going to be wasting a, um, you know, all these backup spots on on smaller smaller guys who they think might, you know, turn into something like they want special teams guys who can run down the field, um, and you know, and, and be a uh, human cannonball. So, uh, you know, you know, if you look at maybe even someone like James Wiggins from Cincinnati, like I'm not saying that he's just a special teamer, but he's going to contribute on special teams like early in the NFL. That's a that's a that's a guy who's got great length and he can really run and hit. Um, but his instincts might just not be great enough to, you know, contribute earlier in the NFL. But like that is a guy who will for sure be a special teams demon uh, early in his career. Yeah. Oh, that that reminds me of uh, heading back to Trey Brown. I mean, yes, he's a little he's a hair under 510, but he's 188 pounds track star speed. And while his tackling form isn't great, you can tell he wants to tackle. He's not afraid of the tackling. So I'm just uh, like imagining him. Like, I was watching his Oklahoma State tape, and he's just getting obliterated by Tylen Wallace. And then I'm just like... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Tylen Wallace, yeah. Imagine him as a... Just imagining him as a gunner just made me feel a lot happier. Right. made me a bit more comfortable knowing that he's going uh, to make an NFL team. And, and see, like, here's the thing. When I'm talking about athletic ability and special teams. So, beating press... It's not something that, you know, a normal person can just go out there and do, right? You have to know how to beat press. When you're a gunner on special teams, you are often, especially in the NFL, you're getting pressed by two guys. So you're getting pressed by two NFL players. 
you need to be an elite athlete. Otherwise, what are you going to do? Right. Uh, so that's why, you know, these guys who play gunner, they stick around in the NFL for a long time. They're not really good on offense. They're not really good on defense. Sometimes these guys switch, you know, are they wide receiver or are they, are they a corner or something like that? Because teams are just trying to play this, um, the roster game. They're a gunner. You know, like that's their job on the team. Right. So you're going to see guys with fantastic athleticism that aren't really great football players uh, stick around in the NFL for a long time and play on fourth down um, because you can't teach, you know, a guy to, you know, run four fours. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Part part of me wishes that we can like uh, have like NFL rosters with like maybe 60 or something people so that like those the gunners can actually have like their own spot like gunners and kick returners. <laughs> right. yeah, right. Like that that I think would make football a lot more fun and give us some more positions to scout. <laughs> because guys, I think what is it? Avery Williams is considered a great special uh, special teams guy. He had a lot of success as a kick returner, but you know just doesn't seem to have that ideal size that you're going to need at the corner. But just is very very shifty with the ball in his hands. So yeah, like just let more guys ball out on special teams. Make make special teams more fun. Do do some more cool things with it. Like, I know all these new leagues are pretty much taking special teams out of the NFL, and I'm just like, why don't we just maybe cha- uh, change some things up to make it more fun? That's why I kind of liked what the XFL did with, like, the little, they kind of did the CFL hoop rule, where when you return a kick, you have to, like, give them five yards of space. I think uh, right. that would be uh, something that the the NFL should, uh, should consider to give us some more fun on punt returns and make punt returners a more valuable commodity. Nobody yeah. even returns punts. The punters are too good nowadays. They just float yeah. the ball up and everything's a fair catch. Yeah, I know. And returning punts is like, you know, yeah, it's like, it's like playing the scratch off, you know, it's very, very low chance. It, it Usually if someone returns a punt, it's like, because the punter out punted the coverage and then someone on the coverage went, ran in the wrong lane it rarely has to do with, you know, the returner making like a bananas spectacular athletic play. It's, you know, usually a mistake on the return team, on the uh, coverage team. So exactly. Let's like no, no returner had more than 30 punt returns this uh, season, 30 punt returns taken out. So at the most, if a punt returner is lucky, he can might get two punt returns that aren't fair catches a game. Less and, 30, you know, 30 is less than that. So, yeah, if he's lucky. <laughs> yeah, it's just like I I want to do something about this. We had. We did not have a single person with two punt return touchdowns. It was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight punt returns for a touchdown this year. And ooh, we actually had seven kickoff returns for touchdowns, which is that was a little higher than I expected. Yeah, the kick kick return that's more likely to get oh, a crease, you know. Um, two two of them were on onside kicks, so two of them were the freak ones. So only five real kickoff returns for touchdowns. Right. There you go. But you know, like yeah, return. Ret- we're talking about special teams ability. You know, returners. I think that that's a little easier to see. You know, especially you know you look at like. Obviously, Kadarius Tony, he's going to go pretty high in the draft, but like that's going to be a guy who can return, you know, kicks and punts early in his career. It's obvious that that that's translatable. But like 
there's also 11 other guys on both you know on both sides of the team who are playing so majority of special teams is blocking and tackling like that's what it is and you know you want a defensive end who can run and be on your uh, kick return or your kickoff team or your be on your punt team you know you want a backup tight end who can run and who can block um, to be on your on your kick return team you know all that stuff you want to have the, some guys who are big who can move who can tackle um, that's going to be your core special teamer um, and a lot of times those guys have like no chance of like actually playing on offense or defense but because they're big and, and strong they're going to be a fourth down player for as long as they're playing in the NFL. Absolutely. All right. Any other player you, uh, you want to talk about? Um, did we talk about Kelvin Joseph? Oh, we have not talked about Kelvin Joseph. Yes. So Kelvin Joseph, or, uh, as he is known, uh, on Twitter, pretty sure it's boss man fat. He's got like a rapper name or something. That's, that's always, uh, always kind of fun when, we can when players kind of give themselves personalities it's it all kind of reminds me like wwe like you got yourself and you got your alter ego but you know what was your uh thoughts on kelvin joseph he was not a prospect for like anybody on anybody's list um for most of the year he comes out as a red shirt sophomore and uh and then Mel Kuyper starts ranking him as cornerback four. And then people start getting seeing the hype on him. Uh, what happened uh, with him? Uh, what does he do well? And why did he shoot up the board so fat or fast? <laughs> I mean, this guy's, uh, this guy's an incredible talent. You know, um, th- those issues that I talked about with Greg Newsom as far as like when guys, you know, geared down and broke inside when people when they were running at full speed. Kelvin Joseph was like immediately is able to drop his hips and go just as fast or if not like beat those guys to their point when, when they're breaking Um, just really explosive in and out of his breaks, which, you know, he, I think he's like probably going to be around six. He's going to be over six feet tall. He's probably be like um, a hair under six one. And usually guys who are like that length, they're not like special from a back pedal. They're like press man guys. Right. So when you see guys who can backpedal and and break when they're over six feet tall, that's pretty special. That's not you know um, the most common thing. And his breaks um, when when he's when he's backpedaling and he's driving are just com- like first of all it's perfect technique as far as planning with the back foot and driving off the front foot, but it's also super explosive. Um, just, you know, jumped a lot of passes, broke up a lot of passes from off coverage and from, um, from press coverage. And I also thought this guy's instincts were fantastic, you know, like, um, early in the year, it was his first time playing. Cause I believe he had to sit out a year cause he transferred. So it was his first time playing in like over a year cause he transferred from LSU. Okay. And when he was at LSU for everyone, for the record, he wore number one at LSU. He wore number one at LSU. This guy's incredible talent okay you don't just get number one at lsu all right you like we're talking about you know um he was their priority at lsu okay so um he set out from lsu came in in kentucky and the very first game i forget who they played but it was the first game of the season it was his first time playing in over a year he's playing cover three and he's supposed to read two to one vertical if you're in cover three and you got a guy up the seam and number one goes under you got to overlap and get on top of number two and he didn't do that and he gave us a gives us a touchdown right 
for the rest of the games that I watched, I watched like six more games of his, he consistently was in the right place against that. So I'm like, okay, he's learning. You know, he's 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 growing from his mistakes. And you really didn't really see him make uh, the same mistake more than once. Um, and on top of that, you know, he was undercutting things. He was jumping things. He had great anticipation. Um, so when you ha- when you combine the fact that he's a six foot one corner with really good physical traits and he's a smart player, it's like, come on, you know, what more can you really want from this guy? Probably not the best tackler in the class or anything like that. Um, but you know, not many NFL teams are going to worry about him as long as he just checks the box there. So. Yeah, I. It's just always fun when players are able to um, just blow up out of nowhere, and everyone's just starting to watch their tape at uh, tape at once and coming away with big things. He seems like just one of those very high upside, fun, really good athletes. I mean, if, if you're getting recruited at LSU as a defensive back, I mean, you you know yeah. that's like DBU. Right. Exactly. So exactly. that um. That was uh that was definitely fun here um hearing from you. We learned a lot about defensive backs, a lot about those uh a lot about those players. I know defensive back is a very difficult position to scout because it's pretty contingent on you getting all twenty two film. Right. And it's uh just one of those positions where there's just so much technique and it was uh great to hear your input. Uh BD, do you have anything that you would uh would like to plug before we uh get on out of here? By the draft guide, guys, these guys, uh, you know, Paul, Cyril, these guys put an incredible amount of effort and work into it. It's comprehensive. It's the best thing in the the industry right now. So buy it. You will not be disappointed. All right. Thank you. uh, Thank you so much, BD. And uh, I look forward to doing another uh, doing podcast soon. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening and supporting and have a great rest of your evening. Thank you.